Uh, turn to First Chronicles chapter four. First Chronicles chapter four. Now I'm willing to bet it's been a long time since we've looked in this church uh, or any church you've ever been at the book of First Chronicles. And um, if you've never read First Chronicles, um, there is good reason for that. The majority of it is genealogy. So when we went through Genesis and people complained about all the genealogies, you know nothing until you come to First Chronicles. Now, the genealogies are important in what the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles is doing. Uh, so, so we want to look at two verses. It's not genealogical, um, but uh, it is a passage uh, we've probably heard of, even though if we haven't read it or even knew where it was. So 1 Chronicles chapter 4, if you'll stand with me, we'll read these two verses about our boy Jabez. The writer of 1 Chronicles writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, every time we gather, we, 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 we plead for the same thing. Believe in your word. We want to see you, and we want to be transformed by the gospel. And we believe this is the work of the Spirit, and we ask that your Spirit would show up in a mighty way. We have your text before us, your revelation before us. May we receive it. May we be changed because of it. So open our entire being that we would become more like you. May I decrease that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Yeah. Many of you all know that uh, when I was in high school, I worked in retail. Uh, even though I, I lived in Owen County, um, uh, my wife and I went up because we were dating then. I just turned 16, just got my license. So I've been, six, I guess, 16, about six months by then. Just got my license. We went up uh, to Florence, y'all, to on a little date like, like, like we do. And I swung by a family Christian store, store 132 in Florence, Kentucky. And uh, while we were there, uh, I was a, I was a uh, Christian music junkie. And uh, uh, I went and uh, got me a CD or something like that. And up on, by the register was a sign that said, Hiring Music Department. And that was just the dream job for, for a high schooler where everyone wants you to work at Dairy Queen locally or something like that. The chance of working in the field that you, you already had an interest and some knowledge in, this was just ideal. And the drive was nothing for us in Owen County. We drove an hour just, just to, uh, um, I don't know, see traffic, I guess. So, um, uh, so I immediately uh, got, got an application, remember those, drove home, had my parents help me fill it out, grabbed my, my then girlfriend, now wife. We drove all the way back to Florence and I turned it in, got the job, loved, loved that job. I would, I would actually give about five years of my life to family Christian stores, two and a half years at 132 in Florence, two and a half years at Store 77 in Louisville. And there are two things that kept me employed uh, in Christian retail. Two things. The one was the Left Behind series. We sewed thousands of them. In fact, whenever we would, uh, one book would be released, I mean, we would have thousands in the store, and it was a big deal uh, when they would come in. Then we had to store them to the release date, and then we would stay up late uh, after we closed just to get them all out so that when people came the next morning, they'd be there. It would be the first thing you would see. We had all the posters and everything. And then that day that that book 
7 was released, we had pre-buys for book 8. And so we spent weeks, people coming to pick up their books or, or buying another. Left Behind kept me employed. There was another product that kept me employed. It was a little book, a little tiny book, maybe that big. We have a copy of it, along with the Left Behind series, in our library. I know because I read it uh, last week, our copy of it, because I think I, I must have gave mine away or sold it or something uh, to pay for seminary books. And that book was uh, by Bruce Wilkinson called The Prayer of Jabez. And you all remember The Prayer of Jabez? I believe it came out in 2000, 2001, something like that. It was a runaway bestseller. Just a little tiny book. It's, it's like 80, maybe 90 pages, but it's not, like, like it, it's, it's not a complicated read. It's a very simple read, which is what made it so attractive. Um, I, before I read Prayer Jabez, I read the Prayer Jabez for Teens. Um, but you could also get the Prayer Jabez for men, for women, for singles, for couples, for husbands, for wives, for moms, for dads, for high schoolers, college students, middle schoolers, kids. You can get them for the elderly, get them for the young, get them for retirees, get them for the working, get them for the police, the fire department. I mean, you, you, you get everything. And that's just the books. And then we sewed the gifts where you could get someone, a, I, I, I don't know, a, I don't know, E.T. going across the moon with the caption, and God answered prayer, Jabez prayer. So, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we sold all kinds of gifts and, and we sewed uh, a music of prayer, Jabez. In fact, my favorite version of In Christ Alone, we sang this morning, was on a CD called Secrets of the Vine. Uh, and Secrets of the Vine was the sequel to Prayer, Jabez. So to this day, it's, it's Adrian Leshine who married Jeremy Camp from Benjamin Gate and uh, um, um, Jeff, Jeff in the Distance. What was his name? Uh, Jeff Moore in the distance. So Jeff Moore and Adrian Leshing singing in Christ alone. Love that version. It came from the sequel of Prayer Jabez, Secret of the Vine. Uh, we, this kept me employed. These two products kept me employed because we sold them like crazy. Now, now I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have a lot of beef with the Prayer Jabez, but, but I must say the way we approached this prayer through that book was that it became a ritual one would recite for the means of receiving God's blessings. In fact, he writes in the book, if you would just pray this prayer as I have for 30 years, you're going to find uh, that your life's just going to be better. You're going to receive the blessings of God. Your, your life is going to be enlarged and, and, and all these opportunities are going to come this way. And people bought it as a sort of soft prosperity book to, 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 to find ease in life. Americans want more than anything to, eat, to live an easy life. And, and although I think it would be unfair to describe it as a prosperity heretical book, it certainly flirted with it, I, I think. However, I, I do agree with, with Wilkinson in that this is a bizarre passage in an obscure part of the Bible. You and I are not going to be reading First Chronicles this week, I'm willing to bet. And if you are trying to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you make it through Leviticus, I'm very proud of you. But when you get to this point, you're going to go crazy. And you're not going to tell anyone, but you're just going to skip it. You're going to say you read it, but the truth is you're just going to skip it because you can't pronounce hardly any of these names. But there is clearly something going on here. And I think Wilkinson is right that there, there's, there's, there's something so weird about it. Because look at the context here. If we were to go back to chapter 1, okay? I told you it's genealogy. Stick with me. We are going somewhere with this. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 24, the first half, we get the genealogy from Adam to Abraham. And on your own time, you could read that for yourself. In verses 28, all the way down uh, to 
54, in the rest of chapter 1, we get the genealogy from Abraham to the Edomites. That's the descendants of Saul and all that. If you come to chapter 2, that whole chapter, it's 55 verses long, is a genealogy of the sons of Jacob. Or rather, uh, it's, it's the, it's the uh, I've got them sort of, it's the genealogy of David, forgive me. Um, no, 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 it is Jacob. I think my Bible's got a typo there. It is Jacob. I knew my study was right. And in chapter 3 is the descendants of David. Okay, so, so you're going to get the, the, the 12 tribes, you're going to get them in chapter 2, and then you're going to zero in on the line of David in chapter 3. And so when you come into chapter 4, you're going to get a list of descendants from Judah. Now, you'll notice the chronology is sort of messed up. I couldn't figure all that out, that I couldn't pronounce uh, 99% of the names. And so, so I just want you to look at some of these in chapter 4 with me. All right, stick with me. We are going somewhere here with it. Chapter 4, verse 1, the sons of Judah, here they are, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, Shobal. And you can keep reading there. It sounds like that. Just name after name after name after name. Now, our passage is verses 9 to 10. Pick up in verse 11. So at the end of verse 10, God granted Jabez what he asked. Verse 11, Caleb, the brother of Shuha, father Mehir, who fathered Eshton. Eshton fathered, but you don't know it either. And you see the points. Is, is you get genealogy, genealogy, name, 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 name. Hey, by the way, there's this guy named Jabez who said a prayer, God answered him. Name, 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 name. It's bizarre. You don't really find anything like this in Chronicles at all. It just sticks out. It leaps off the page. And the question we have then, who is Jabez and why did the writer insert him here? Why this narrative here? You won't find Jabez hardly anywhere else. In fact, the name Jabez is found three times in the Bible, twice in these two verses. The other time, it's also in Chronicles, but it's a place name. It's probably where uh, like a bunch of uh, uh, priests studied and whatnot. Um, that's it. That's it. So what, what do we do with this? I think there's clearly something going on here, and his prayer is important for the writer. But why is it here? Two things I want us to see. The first thing is that Jabez was an honorable man who suffered. He was an honorable man who suffered. Let's start with his name, Jabez. I'm willing to bet you don't have anyone in your, your family named Jabez. And much has rightly been made about this man's name. The word, again, only appears three times. The other reference is in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 55, against the place name. The word means sorrow or grief, and it, it is more likely associated with the meaning of pain and suffering. Thus, when Jabez was born, as the text tells us, that his mother named him Jabez after his birth, uh, that he was given the name Pain. Now, how would you like to be named Pain? Everywhere you went, uh, you, you, you were named Pain. When you were growing up in school and the teacher on the first day of, of school was, was going through the list of all the students, they were looking for Pain, Smith, Pain, Smith, you have to say, I'm the one that's the pain. And the teacher's thinking, I knew, I knew one of you were going to be a pain, right? And, and, and this is the name you, you grew up with. Now, remember that in the ancient world, a person's name could be part of a narrative or it could be prophetic. We choose names because they sound pretty and because they flow really well. You didn't do that in the ancient world. We come up with names often without really caring what the meaning of the names are. 
In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. So, so sometimes they're associated with a narrative. For example, John uh, the Baptist was given uh, a name tied to uh, the narrative, right? Uh, Jesus was given a prophetic name that uh, uh, Joshua, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And so, so you, you can see this. Um, um, when um, Rachel gave birth to her second and, and last son, Benjamin, she first named him Ben-Onai, which, which means a son of, uh, son of my suffering or something like that. Uh, uh, and his name was then changed to Benjamin, son of my right hands. So this, this is common at this time. This guy isn't given a name with a promise, isn't given a name with a, with, with a positive note to it. He was given the name of pain. Now we're left scratching our heads as to why he's named this because the text doesn't tell us anything. We get no other biographical information about him than what is available here. And so we are left to speculate. Some will say it is associated with his birth. Maybe uh, it was a very difficult birth for his mother. And so when she finally gave birth to the child, she said, I will call you pain. I will never forget how difficult it was to bring you into this world. That's possible. Again, go to Rachel, wanted to name her son uh, Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. One common theory is that it is associated with the absence of his father. Now, you'll notice here in chapter 4, not to mention chapters 1, 2, and 3, is, is that the uh, genealogy is tied through the lines of men. Judah and Perez, David and Solomon, so on and so forth. This is typical of ancient genealogies. And it's still really still true today, though certainly to a lesser extent. He, on the other hand, we hear of his brothers, we hear of his mother, we hear nothing of his father. It's very possible that his father had died between conception and birth for whatever reason. And so the birth of Jabez became a reminder, not just of what she gained, but what she lost in her husband. We just simply don't know. Maybe he died a tragic death. Maybe it was in war. Maybe it was disease. Maybe it was plague. Maybe it was an accident. We just don't know. All we know is that he is named Pain. Now, regardless of his name, um, he, 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 he lives beyond that connotation. However, in his family, everyone, and in his tribe, they would have viewed him through the lens of his name. So you can see the language there, that he was more honorable than his brothers, which implies that the way people treated him as if he was, by, by nature of his birth, by nature of his name, less honorable than his brother's. And despite his name, he has to rise above it. Well, that's his name. Secondly, look at his ancestry. Scholars seem to agree that Jabez lived during the time of the judges. I'm not entirely for sure where they get that, um, unless you assume that, that Jabez is put here in, in, in a certain chronology. I would trust the scholars more than me because I am not an expert on these genealogies, nor do I want to be if I'm being honest. If, if God showed up and said, I need you to be an expert on this, he and I would have a long conversation about it, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, this is not my favorite part of, of the Bible. But scholars who, who do understand this better, they, they seem to agree he lived during the time of the judges, which is ironic considering what we're studying on Wednesdays. Now, what is uh, interesting to me is that he is presumed to be of the tribe of Judah. And I think that's a reasonable conclusion. After all, we see in chapter 3 the descendants of David, a lot of Judah. Chapter 4, we see the sons of David. And those include, uh, you see there in verse 1, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. And so, so it makes sense that he is inserted here in chapter 4 so that we connect him 
to Jabez. Again, the problem is, is that we don't know how he is connected to Judah. His father's never mentioned. Now, do the best you can. I've tried the best I can. Okay, it's in verse 9. Is he connected to Kaz, Anub, Zobabah? Is he the clans of Aharhel, the sons of Harum? I don't know. I don't know. It just, you have a genealogy and all of a sudden, hey, there's a dude named Jabez who said a prayer. Thus we are to conclude that his birth was forgettable, his name was unfortunate, and no one expected anything from him. Notice thirdly, his disposition. He was more honorable than his brothers, there in verse 9. Despite his unfortunate name and his apparent poor reputation, he rose above it all to become what the text describes as an honorable man. He was even more honorable than his brothers. Now, this word honorable, I think, is the key to, to, to this verse. This word is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. We've actually looked at this word before. At its root, it means heavy. So, so don't, don't, don't read this as Jabez was heavier than all of his brothers, though he may have been, I don't know. But let me just sort of show you etymologically that this is associated with the idea of heavy. In, in Exodus chapter 5, uh, when Moses comes and says, let my people go, and his best Charlton, uh, whatever voice, um, remember what Pharaoh does is he adds heaviness to their load. Same thing in Lamentations. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. That, that I'm, I'm trapped. I, I can't lift them. They are heavy. The word just means heavy. However, when it is applied, it can, it can be applied in a negative sense and in a positive sense. In a negative sense, it could mean uh, uh, to be burdensome, to be severe, to be dull, or even to harden. And initially, we would think that's what it means in the text. Here is a guy named Pain who is in pain in everybody's neck. He is, therefore, a heavy person. He's a negative person. He's burdensome. He is dull. He is, he is, he is severe. However, there is a positive sense to this word, and it carries the idea of, of numerous or rich or honorable. Let me give you just one example of this uh, in the context of wealth. In Genesis 13, we hear that Abraham was very heavy in livestock. You can see how, 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 how the word works. Uh, he was heavy in wealth. In other words, he was rich. He was rich. And you really don't have digital currency at this time. If you had a lot of money, it would weigh, weigh you down. Uh, if he had coins, or in this case, it was in livestock. Now, this dual meaning of the negative and the positive, uh, the Bible plays with that. For example, you remember Eli, the priest? He was heavy in the sense of his weight. He was also uh, heavy in the sense that his sons were wicked. They were very wicked. So here is a heavy man with heavy sons. And you'll, you'll find that because of his heaviness, he fell back, and that's how he died. So instead of being heavy in terms of honor, he was heavy in terms of dishonor. And that heaviness is what led to his death. The Bible's playing with, with, with this, this dual meaning. In this context, I agree with our translations that the, 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 the writer wants us to see Jabez, someone with a negative name, with a positive disposition. Though his name is pain, his disposition is one of honor. He is more honorable even than his brothers. And so his is a person of honor and glory. We again are given no details. 
I suspect it has to do with his character, his integrity, and his faithfulness to the God of Israel, as we'll see. He, therefore, found his hope in God, not in his birth name or his reputation. I think that is, there's an obvious application there. Who you are is determined by God, not other people. Even if one of those people who may think negatively of you is someone you love dearly, like your own mother. There is no one to intercede given his name. Therefore, he is carrying around the burden that he is perceived in negative light. Despite that, he proved to be more honorable. His name didn't weigh him down, but his honor lifted him up. He was a man of honor despite his suffering. I want you to notice, secondly, that Jabez was a righteous man who prayed. And this is the part that gets all the press here in verse 10. This is his actual prayer. Let's read it again. Oh, that you would bless me, enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted his request. Now, I must say that... Um, there is a major temptation I have for us to go uh, uh, in all the details. Uh, you will notice that there's, there, it depends on how you lay it out. Most say there are four petitions here. There's six in the Lord's Prayer, four here, and we could go through them. But I actually, I actually want us to ask the question, why is the prayer here? I think the, the reason it's here for the writer is more important than what the prayer is. So we could go through here, but, but because we are Americans and what we do with the Bible is we come to the Bible and say, okay, where am I at in this story? Oh, I know. I'm Jabez. And if I pray this prayer, God's going to do with me what he did with Jabez. And, and although there, there is room for application in what we can learn from Jabez, I don't think Jabez is the model prayer. I think the Lord's prayer is. So instead of us approaching it as, okay, I want God to enlarge my territory, whatever that means. I want God to bless me, whatever that means. And we approach it with a soft American prosperity approach. So can I give you two priorities of Jabez's prayer here? And we could, we could spend a whole week looking at it in detail, but I just want to look at two priorities, okay? The first priority is it is the hope of Israel in captivity, Jabez's prayer is applied as it relates to Israel in captivity. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, you're fishing here, preacher. Jabez lives in the time of Judges. What does that have to do with the Babylonian captivity? It has everything to do with Babylonian captivity. Now, remember, it's difficult for us to nail down specifics about Jabez. His father's not mentioned, nor is his connection to the line of Judah. Likewise, the term in his era is a mystery, though most agree, again, he lived in the time of Judges before the monarchy. Although specificity about Jabez is hard to come by, one thing we do know about this passage is the motivation behind the writer. That's the important issue. Remember that each book is written by someone with, with a motivation. They, they're writing with a purpose. And we know what the purpose of 1st 2nd Chronicles is. So you, you get 1st and 2nd Samuel, you get 1st and 2nd Kings, and that's the history of the monarchy, going from Saul at the end of the Judges, Samuel, all the way to Zedekiah and, and the Babylon captivity. That's the story from 1st Samuel to 2 Kings. Then when you read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you get through the genealogies, what you find is a retelling of that story condensed down. You, you want to know what part is abridged? You want to know what part is taken out? Mostly the bad stuff. 
Let me give you an example. If you were to read the story of David uh, in Chronicles, what you'll find is, you know all those stories. You know about David and Goliath. You, you know about his victories over, over these people and that people. You read that in First and Second Samuel. However, what you won't read about in First and Second Chronicles is the sin with Bathsheba. It's not there. And what you'll find is that the writer of Chronicles, although doesn't shy away from some of the negative stuff of the monarchy, clearly wants the reader to be reminded of the triumphs of the Jewish monarchy. Now, why is that? Because it's written, it's one of the last books written in the chronology of the Old Testament, uh, right around the time of Malachi and all that, as, as people are coming out of captivity, it's written with a certain goal in mind. Because when you're coming out of captivity, stinging from the judgment of God, you already know why you went into captivity. Sin. Your ancestors fell away from God. You already know that. Do you need to be reminded of that? No. What you do need to be reminded of is despite your sin, God has liberated you once again from the Babylonians so that, so that you may follow after him in the land of your ancestors as he promised. And to show that, he says, yes, we have our problems, but look what God has done through the people of Israel when they choose righteousness. So you get an abridged version of the history of the monarchy with the lens of Israel's triumphs and not their failures. Now, this is where Jabez comes into play. Is that Jabez prays for three things, all of which are connected to covenantal faithfulness. Notice these three things. First of all, he prays for blessing. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border. Now, if, if you're reading the prayer of Jabez, what you're going to get is, see, just pray for God to bless you, and we'll make up things of what the blessing means. Usually means money and health. And then we'll pray, he'll enlarge your border, which means your influence will grow, your prosperity will grow, your property will grow, your reach will grow. And so you see how we internalize Jabez. And in so doing, we've taken Jabez out of his historical context, and we've taken him out of his written context from the perspective of the, of the chronicler. Rather, what does blessing and enlarging of border mean to someone in the days when this was first written? Those coming from Babylon. I think it's obvious. You remember what we talked about, the meaning of praise. It can mean, it, it, bless, bless, rather. It can mean praise, bless the Lord, O my soul. It can reference to faith. Um, that God blessed Abraham when he received the covenant. It can also mean wisdom, that those who do right, uh, choose right from wrong are blessed. The word here is in reference to covenantal faithfulness. This is where we make the biggest mistake. He is not praying exclusively for himself, but rather for his people. And this is again made in, uh, clear in the opening line. Bless as Abraham was blessed, enlarge my borders as God had promised. So when Israel returns to the promised land, they've got just a small piece of it. And here, I think the writer is taking this guy in the day of Judges, and he's wanting us to see in the context of Israel returning. We, too, want to pray for God's faithfulness to his people, that the, 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 the land would, would extend and the promises first made to Abraham will be realized. And remember that in the ancient world, land was tied to deity. We want the, God's hand to reach around the nations. That's the hope of Israel. 
And here comes a guy who says, God bless Israel and extend our borders. We want to return to the day of David. Secondly, he prays for presence. Presence. Uh, That your hand, he says, might be with me. God's covenantal favor was tied to more than land, but to his presence. He is asking that even in the age of judges, God would be with his people. And like Moses and Israelites to the wilderness, Jabez is seeking the presence of God. Now for him, he's saying it in the time when no one sought after God. This is what made him more honorable than his brothers. But for the chronicler, he's saying, God, despite our sins, as we return to land, we want you to be there with us. We want your presence to be known. We need to rebuild the temple. We want you with your people in grace. The third thing he prayed for is security. Keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. Now, your translation may read that a little differently, um, and and that's a translation issue. There's some debate over that. I'm just going to stick with ESV for the sake of simplicity. God's blessing in Israel was tied to land, love, and loyalty. In the days of Judges, Israel was constantly being threatened. We've seen that on Wednesday nights. And and, uh, they were a vulnerable people. But returning from Israel, of, of exile, rather, they were still a vulnerable people. Read the book of Nehemiah. And so here he's saying, God, would you protect your people? And that's true for the day of Judges. It's true for the day returning from exile. So through the eyes of, of the author, Jabez, I believe, represents Israel. He's saying, here you are. I'm reminding you that God God's line of faithfulness is extending, mostly through Judah because the lost tribes are lost. But, but right here in the middle, as you're reading these names, don't forget the, book, the point of the book. God will bless, he will be with, and he will protect the people of God. Don't forget that, I believe he says. But I want you to notice the second purpose of this prayer. And that is not just the hope of Israel from captivity. I think it's the hope of sinners seeking redemption. The beauty of this prayer is that it's not just about Jabez or the ancient ancient Israelites. It is ultimately, as you should expect by now, about Jesus. There are strange things in this text that are easy to overlook upon first reading, but I believe clearly point us to the gospel. Can I show you just a few of them? The first thing we need to see here is the word curse. Look at verse 9 again. You remember, he, he, this is Jabez. By the way, I want to highlight, notice how Jabez is repeated over and over again. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother called his name Jabez. You don't need that. That's bad English. Your, your English teacher would not like it if you turned that in and you were in fourth grade. Right? It drives me crazy because I want to fix that so bad. But I don't want to do that to the Holy Spirit. He, he may not like that. But notice here, she named him Jabez saying this, because I bore him in pain. Now, we talked about how Jabez, it's, 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 it's a messed up word, but, but it, it means pain. Clearly, the, the writer is playing with words here. Pain. And so you are named pain because I bore you in pain. We talked about that could be a matter of his birth, right? Or it could be the, the, the issue surrounding his birth. Maybe his father had died, ran off or something like that. But does that phrase, because I bore him in pain, sound familiar? It should. Genesis 3.16. I will surely multiply your pain. 
in childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The word used here for pain, which mirrors Jabez, although it's been changed a little bit, is the same word used here in verse 16 of Genesis 3. His mother says, I brought you in pain. And what we were reminded of immediately is that this is part of the curse. So when Jabez walks around, yes, it is a dishonorable name from his mother, but it's a reminder that he, like the rest of us, stand cursed in this fallen, broken world of sin. I think the writer is purposely using this word because we too, like Jabez, if you want to find yourself in the narrative, it is that we are under this curse. And so we live in a world of hardship, suffering and shame and guilt and sin. We have been brought through the, into this world through pain. Secondly, notice the word bless. There, verse 10. Oh, that you would bless me. If his birth is tied to the curse of sin, his prayer, I believe, is the reversal of that. So it is him acknowledging that I have been born into pain like all of us. But his prayer is for God to reverse that reality. That is the language of redemption. Oh, that you would bless me is tied to God's redemptive work. This is why when God intervenes into the life of Abraham, he says, I will bless you and through you, I'll bless the nations. You can't read the word blessed throughout the Old and New Testament without seeing its connection to the redemptive work of God. And so here is a man named Pain, born in pain like the rest of us, and his prayer isn't, God, why is everything so bad? It's rather, I deserve nothing, but would you bless me through redemption? This is God's mighty work. In fact, in, as a result, I think he's reversing Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, you get, you shall surely die. Here, it is, you shall surely be blessed. And we know that in the answering of his prayer. Adam's sin moved him from paradise to judgment, whereas Jabez's prayer moves him from judgment to paradise. And that's where we err when we think this prayer is all about how I can live a life of ease. The point of it is, how can I find the Redeemer and be, and be blessed in him? This language of death is evident in the prayer's context. Now, I said that you won't find anything like this in the genealogy. That is mostly true, but you do get little nuggets. For example... Stick with me. This is going to get boring. Chapter 2, verse 3. We've got to read difficult names. Chapter 2, verse 3. So verse 1, we are given the sons of Israel, okay? And in verse 3, we get the sons of Judah. Now, we meet some of them in chapter 4, but, and I get lost in all that, but I'm just going to go with, with, with the flow. So verse 4, verse 3, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 3. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, um, uh, we talked about these cats when we went through Genesis. They weren't good folks. These three, Bathsheba, the Canaanite, bore to him. Now, we talked about that story a little bit. Okay? Now, Ur, Judah's firstborn. Now, notice we are now in narrative. So we went, here's the three sons, okay. Who gave birth to them? A Canaanite gave birth to them. 
right? So we're in narrative now. It's brief, much like Jabez, but this narrative is tied to the genealogy. Jabez, it just pops up there. So Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and he put him to death. What's the emphasis so far in this genealogy? It's death. Verse 4, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remember her story. Remember, God judged Ur. He then judged Onan for not uh, propagating the line of his older brother Ur uh, through his wife. And so God judged Onan. Both Ur and Onan are killed by God. So you remember that then Judah ends up uh, pregnating his own daughter-in-law who is dressed as a prostitute. That's Tamar there in verse 4. Tamar was, was, was a Canaanite, okay? His daughter-in-law, Tamar, also bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Nothing good there, is there? Well, come on down then to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The sons of, so here you get the sons of Perez, verse 5, Hezron and Hamul. Here's the sons of Zerah, one of the sons of Judah through Tamar, his daughter-in-law. The sons of Zerah, Zimri, Ethan, Himan, Calcol, and Dara, five in all. Yeah, the sons of Carmi, verse 7, Achan, the troubler of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted things. And Ethan's son was Azariah. <laughs> so you see, you're getting, you get a name, 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 brief narrative, name, name, name. What's the point of the narrative? You remember Achan? We looked at him months ago. Achan is the guy in the book of Joshua who went to Ai, stole some loot for himself so he can get rich off the suffering of the judgment of the Canaanites. And God had to judge Israel by losing at Ai. And then he and his family killed, executed. So, so notice here, right at the beginning of chapter 2, we get two narratives. What's the emphasis of both narratives? Curse, judgment, death. Disobedience. Onan disobeyed uh, the Lord's will in how to propagate the line, thus dishonoring his own brother, his older brother. Sounds like Jabez's story. And then you get Achan, who is himself bringing a curse upon Israel by disobeying the Lord, stealing from the Canaanites, when all that stuff was to be given and dedicated to the Lord. So then, when we come into chapter 4 of Jabez, something strange happens. We meet a guy named Pain. And a line of pain, and a line of sin, a line of suffering, a line of death. And what do we find? Not a curse, but a blessing. Not death, but life. You see it? If you still don't believe me, you can check this for yourself. Read the rest of the genealogies of First Chronicles. Good luck you will not find another reference to death and disobedience again. It stops right here. What's the point of Chronicles? Not to remind you of the wickedness we've brought upon the earth, but to remind you God has been faithful despite it. And Jabez, this bizarre figure, is the linchpin of showing that. Well, Let's look thirdly, redemption in this prayer. Redemption. We should not overlook here that Jabez is of the line of Judah. And I think what's more interesting is how he is born without any reference to his father. 
He enters the story amid chaos, wickedness, and idolatries we just saw, yet he intercedes, I believe, on behalf of his own people. That word there in verse 10. So he says, your hand might be with me. You would keep me from harm. The Hebrew word there is raw. If you know your Bible, maybe you're familiar with that. We may not be, and that's okay. The word means bad. Now, in its generic term, it just means bad. Now, how it's applied and used in Hebrew, it can mean a thousand things. You're familiar with this word because it takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where God put two trees in paradise, tree of life and the tree of knowledge of tov, good, and raw, evil, or bad. I don't think that's an accident that the word the chronicler uses after already making one reference to Genesis narrative makes another reference to the Genesis narrative. Keep me from raw. See, our Americanism reads that as saying, yeah, I, I, I don't want bad things to happen to me. I'm just too good of a Christian. But I think he's really praying this context is keep us from evil. Keep me from being like my generation. Keep me from wickedness and sin. Keep me from raw. Now, what's interesting is that this is actually what sets Jabez apart from Jesus. Jabez prays that God would protect him from evil, and God does. Jesus prays that God will protect him from evil, and God says no. Jesus goes where Jabez is not forced to. Jesus will bear the cross. Jesus will suffer harm. Jesus will die. You remember there at the cross where he cries, um, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You can almost hear Jabez in the background saying, bless me, enlarge my borders, and protect me from evil. And shortly after Jesus accepts that it is God's will for him to suffer, come raw in human form. People come to arrest and to execute the Son of God. And it is through Jesus' willingness to suffer raw, to suffer evil and harm, that we have the redeeming work of God for each of us. You see, when we read Jabez only as what can I get from God, rather than to read what an amazing God worthy of adoration and gratitude, we miss the point of the text. It's not about you and me. It's where Wilkinson gets it wrong. It's about Jesus. That Jesus is the true and better Jabez who comes to take away the curse of everything. In fact, the song that came to mind was a Christmas song. You all know I'm a bit of a Grinch come Christmas. But, but, but it just jumped off the page for me. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. 
far as the curse is found. Isn't that what we long for in the gospel? Not that I would live a life of ease, but that Christ's triumph is so unimaginable that the earth itself is redeemed. That's a cosmic story, and we're part of it. Let your prayers be that big. Not for yourself, but for the glory of God. Let's pray and we'll we'll be dismissed. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for what an incredible text. I, I am guilty of sometimes coming to the Bible thinking, what in the world do we do with this? It is a difficult passage. But if we would pause and just read the Bible as presented, what we find is Christ crucified, Christ resurrected,